Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the NBN. You're listening to a special podcast we're doing in conjunction with our friends at Princeton University Press. We call it the Princeton University Press Ideas Podcast. In the podcast, we'll be publishing two interviews with Princeton authors every month. If you're interested in following along, you can subscribe to the Princeton University Press Ideas Podcast on the NBN or on your favorite podcast app. The podcast includes not only interviews in the series, but all the interviews we've ever done with Princeton authors, hundreds of them. We hope you enjoy this series, and we hope you visit our friends at Princeton University Press on the web. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network, and I'd like to welcome you to another episode in the Princeton University Press Ideas podcast. Today, we're very lucky to have Eddie Cole on the show, and we'll be talking about his book, The Campus Color Line, College Presidents and the Struggle for Black Freedom. It's out from Princeton University Press just this year in 2020. Welcome to the show, Eddie. Hey, thanks for having me, Marshall. Thanks. Absolutely. Could you begin the interview by telling us a little bit about yourself? Yeah, absolutely. Well, I'm I'm an associate professor um, at UCLA, particularly in the Department of Education within the Higher Education Division. And, uh, you know, f- primarily I focus on, on higher education history uh, during the mid 20th century. And uh, it's just been fascinating work to dive into as currently in this moment in 2020. Uh, we're asking so many questions that have uh, historical background to them. And so we're grappling with things that I've been thinking about for years. And so it's exciting to be with you and chat about my my most recent work. Yeah, it is kind of the moment for higher ed right now. It is yeah. it is the moment. So let me begin by asking you, why did you write the campus color line? Yeah, yeah, I have both a, a professional and a personal uh, motivation behind writing this book. From a professional standpoint, when I first started to formally uh, study higher education history and want to know more about college presidents. Two major things were unfolding nationally in higher education. One, initially, there was the Occupy Wall Street movement, if you remember. And uh, we during that moment, there was these, you know, numerous instances of student arrest unfolding on college campuses, um, challenging academic administrators, academic leaders to grapple with broader questions around capitalism and the role of higher education in, in that. So I was, you know, that caught my attention because once that those those protests were unfolding on college campuses, people looked to college presidents. I was like, well, that's interesting of all the people to address. Uh, you look toward the president. And then a few years later, uh, what more people may remember is the uh, black student protests at the University of Missouri. And one of the demands uh, that emerged that the students were protesting at Mizzou focused on, um, you know, if if racism and campus racial incidents were not going to be addressed, the system president and the campus chancellor, uh, one demand was for them to resign. Um, And that also caught my attention. And then uh, once uh, student athletes on the football team said they were going to potentially boycott a game, both the president and chancellor resigned. So in both of those instances, the Occupy Wall Street movement, um, as well as the uh, black student protests in 2015, that really got me going around saying there's got to be more history here uh, that we just don't know enough about around the role of college presidents um, in these conversations. And so that's the professional. That's sort of the clean, you know, professional (laughs) uh, motivation behind the book. But something else that really got me going to think to even thinking about educational leaders was really my hometown. I grew up in Bology, Alabama, and uh, growing up in uh, West Central Alabama, Greene County, uh, I'm from a family of educators. So my parents were, you know, small town West Alabama school teachers, and my father's parents were also small town West Alabama school teachers. And so they were also members of Black teacher associations. And so even growing up, I had some sense of understanding of the role of education in the overall Black freedom movement. And by the time I came through the public school system in Greene County, Alabama, uh, the remnants of past decisions were still there in the sense that my public high school was around the corner from a um, segregation academy, predominantly white segregation academy, um, and my high school being um you know, 99% black student enrollment. And so even as a teenager, I had questions about past educational leaders 
and their decisions and how those decisions still had uh, an impact on the present. And so that ultimately pushed me to uh, think about this book that if, you know, school leaders in my small rural hometown had this sort of impact, imagine the impact that college presidents have had throughout time. Well, thank you for that. I'm always glad to meet somebody else from Alabama. I was actually born in Huntsville and my sister still lives in Alabama. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) I've lost the accent. You still have yours. Um, (laughs) So I think people would be, one of the things I learned from your book, I was a professor for a long time, but I I never really understood what university presidents did beyond raising money. And maybe that's Mm. a new role for them. But I think that um, listeners would be interested to know why the focus on university presidents what what exactly have university presidents done and what could they do to address issues of race in in higher ed what what exactly is a university president yeah yeah so that, that's a that's a great question marshall and you know the book focuses on um you know 1948 to 1968 so the 1940s through the 1960s and it's important coming out of world war 2 to understand that um, you know, just a tremendous amount of influence that these university leaders inherited. And I say that because, uh, you know, it's well noted how enrollment, college enrollments simply exploded, um, you know, after the war, you know, just, you know, triple, quadruple in many cases, really outpaced the physical space that these campuses had. So with that said, with more people uh, enrolling in college, Uh, more people started paying attention to college campuses. And on top of that, coming out of World War II, uh, the interest in the Cold War uh, made a number of federal officials, state-level officials, as well as business leaders uh, take a more global competitive perspective on things. And in turn, they also look toward colleges and universities. And something that I always like to stress is that in this moment where Um, You know, the United States is grappling with the contradictions of democracy in the sense of going to World War II and fighting a global fight for democracy. Yet black veterans returning home from World War II and being treated like second class citizens, uh, it becomes, you know, a national image issue. And so one of the primary one of the leading issues, obviously, is race is based around race in the United States. And so if colleges and universities uh, even then are supposed to have the the brilliant scientists and social scientists that can address the nation's problems. Uh, In turn, college presidents inherited, like I said, a tremendous amount of influence because they led the institutions which were expected to help solve the nation's problems. And so you see college presidents end up on a number of federal level commissions, uh, state level um, advisory uh, roles, as well as uh, corporate uh, major corporations and foundations look to college presidents as well and national media. I mean, I've, I've found so many beautiful gems in the archives of college presidents at banquets, sitting next to the editors of the New York Times and Newsweek, mm-hmm. uh, all these sort of things that really shifted the role and the scope of the college presidency after World War II in ways that weren't quite the case before World War II. Yes. I, I mean, the status of university presses rose after World War II. Yeah. More important people became presidents of universities. Yeah. That can be said. Let me ask another kind of background question, and that is about university presidents and their constituencies, because <laughs> I imagine that it's kind of a hard job. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I don't think I would want it personally, <laughs> because you have to serve the students and the faculty and the yeah. donors and the alums, and then there's the community and everything that, that, you know, that comes with, with the job. What sort of dilemmas did they face in trying to serve these different constituencies while working on issues of race? Is there any generality you can make about that? Uh, It's almost everything you can imagine, Marshall. I mean, you just listed some of the highlights, right? Um, And then if you lead a state supported, a public institution, you've also got uh, legislature, right? You've also got elected officials. So, one particular dilemma, as you can imagine, when it comes to race um, during this time frame, is when you've got segregationists um, as elected officials um, across the U.S. South, uh, what does it mean when you've got um, Supreme Court decisions like these high-level court decisions as well as federal pressure to desegregate some of these campuses, right? 
um, talk about a dilemma. Um, and I grapple with this in the book through a couple of the chapters specifically. But yeah, I mean, when it comes to uh, constituents, you've got on-campus worries, you've got off-campus worries. And I think one of the um, more obvious challenges that these university leaders had to balance was uh, the pressure put on by students and student activists, uh, particularly when their uh, civil rights uh, related uh, protests and demonstrations went off campus and focused on local businesses. <laughs> yeah. uh, so you can imagine uh, a college president who uh, may have something sponsored on campus or, you know, advertising on campus from local business owners. Um, at the same time, it's those students who are <laughs> causing those same businesses to lose money. But at the same time, I mean, students, again, have a tremendous amount of influence, particularly as enrollments grow, because there are more and more students than ever before. So, I mean, just it is what I've come to call the impossible job. <laughs> um, people do ask me about my interest in the presidency, and I say, no way after writing this book. <laughs> but, uh, but you know, Marsha, I've also come to realize that I characterize these presidents uh, in reality, really in a way they function like elected officials themselves, because they have to answer to so many different constituencies. Yeah, I mean, I think that's exactly right. I, w- I was reminded while reading the book just how difficult the job is because they preci- they, they have to serve all of these these interests and they're often c- conflicting. Um, uh, yeah, a hard job. So let's get right into the book. In the first yeah. chapter of the book, you talk about um, the work of Black college presidents in addressing issues of race. Could you expand a little bit on that? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Um, I've, I, that's, I was so excited to open up the book, um, in particular, focus on the presence of black colleges during this time frame, because I think it's important to center black colleges and center these black college leaders, um, because this is a book about the black freedom movement as seen through the actions of college presidents. So it's important to kick off the book and looking at those individuals. And, you know, the first thing I just have to emphasize is that their work was dangerous work. Right. I mean, and, and not just risky, but I mean, you know, not to overstate it, but life and death sort of things, because at this time, lynchings are a common uh, aspect of American societal life. Um, It's not something that's unheard of, right? I mean, so when you talk about uh, leading institutions that have a role and responsibility to educate Black students and also to try to educate Black students in a way that um, you know, is focused on Black liberation and uh, expansiveness within the community and fighting for equal rights. Uh, oftentimes, these Black college presidents, whether they led a private institution or a state-supported institution, still had to answer to um, some sort of white power structure. Uh, so even if you led a private Black college, um, most oftentimes those institutions were largely supported by numerous of, you know, white missionary groups um, or, you know, that, you know, it just it, you can go down the list. Um, so that's for the private institutions. But if you're public, like I just mentioned, you still have to answer to uh, white state legislators. And so it's so it's such a tricky, tricky job uh, for these individuals. But what I what I notice in the book and try to lay out with a nice amount of care and nuance is that those black presidents were quite courageous um, and that they still press forward um, toward uh, black liberation. And one particular issue that I cover in the book is the question of governance over black colleges. Uh, Ultimately, who gets to make decisions about black institutions of higher education? Is it sort of the white state legislators, uh, you know, white donors, white philanthropists, or should it be the black community, black educators, black academics as well? In Maryland, of all states, um, I spend a lot of uh, time focused on Morgan State. Um, college, which is now Morgan State University in Baltimore, uh, taking a different approach to looking at uh, black colleges in the South by looking at the upper South as opposed to black colleges in the deep South. And just looking at the tremendous amount of savvy and their use of networks, these quiet, silent networks among themselves to support students without oftentimes publicly supporting students. But doing uh, a number of things uh, that will continue to sort of push the envelope, push harder toward racial equality. And so Martin, Martin Jenkins is the president of Morgan State, and he does everything from testify bef- before Congress 
to write uh, writing letters to the editor and op-eds um, in the Washington Post, um, as well as being influential and in going all throughout the South and delivering speeches on uh, black college campuses in the deep South where those presidents did not have the leeway that Martin Jenkins had in Maryland. So I think it's just uh, a fascinating amount of work that these black college presidents had to do to address issues of race. Yeah, I think it's very difficult for people to remember. <laughs> well, I don't remember because I'm not that old, uh, <laughs> but that in the 1950s and into the 60s, segrega segregationism was a, a popular plank in the platform of public of of, of elected officials. You could get yeah. elected on a segregationist ticket. Yeah. <laughs> and, and it's just almost impossible for us to imagine that today. But it was definitely the case. And this made mm -hmm. it very difficult for these black college presidents to negotiate, especially if they were in public institutions, their relationship with the legislature, the people yeah. that actually write the write the checks yeah so. yeah yeah no that's a great point i mean we're talking about <laughs> like you said people their entire campaign is built upon yeah, ma I, ma maintaining segregation yeah right and it was people voted and they yeah i mean democracy right yeah um, so <laughs> it, let's go on a little bit and you talk about the the role of presidents in urban areas and urban areas are particularly important as many people know uh a lot of campuses are in urban areas and this was during and after the period of white flight. So those mm -hmm. areas became predominantly African-American and this became kind of an issue. Can you talk a little bit about that? Yeah, yeah. I think that was um, one of the more fascinating uh, chapters to really dig into. And looking at urban universities in major cities. So think about Chicago, Philadelphia, um, Boston, New York. I mean, these, these cities have notable uh, universities, but as you see population shifts, um, in these same cities, white flight being notable and also, uh, you know, the next wave of the Great Migration, right, post-World right. War II, to, to where so many black uh, citizens from the U.S. South have had enough and they migrate to the Northeast, the Midwest and out West and so forth. Um, and so in that regard, you see uh, what, you know, I, I, you know, I call black encroachment to where black neighborhoods, uh, due to housing discrimination, uh, are overflowing because these new black residents to these cities don't have an unlimited number of options on where they can live. Um, and so because they have such a narrow uh, number of neighborhoods to move into, they become overcrowded. And oftentimes these neighborhoods are close to uh, major universities, such as the University of Pennsylvania, the University of Chicago, uh, Harvard, and the list goes on. With that said, uh, these college presidents, particularly Lawrence Kipton, who's the chancellor at the University of Chicago, notices that enrollment is actually dropping at the University of Chicago. Um, and this is like this is sort of counter to the dominant narrative around this era in college enrollments increasing. University of Chicago is struggling when even some of the smallest colleges in America are growing rapidly. And Chicago is uh, University of Chicago is having enrollment issues as well as faculty retention issues, uh, largely because of its proximity to um, the Woodlawn community, which is predominantly black, um, just south of Hyde Park, and Washington Park community, which is also predominantly black, just to the west of campus. And in 1957, Lawrence Kipton actually calls a meeting uh, with some other urban university presidents, including MIT, Harvard, Columbia, Yale, in the University of Pennsylvania. And these six men come together and they devise a plan among themselves on how they can stop this encroachment. And one of their uh, methods of approach is to actually go to Washington, D.C., turn their attention toward federal legislators and start to get um, federal dollars that are earmarked for urban renewal, which is a federal program which was designed toward um, overall this idea of slum clearance and getting that federal money uh, earmarked for higher education. And the federal government, uh, Congress votes and for a almost $3 to one ratio to where if a University of Chicago put up $1, they get three federal dollars um, toward uh, buying up property near campus, largely in these black neighborhoods and displacing thousands of longtime black residents, uh, disproportionately black residents in the name of uh, keeping their neighborhoods safe. And so this just makes me think about, say, Khalil Jabron Muhammad's uh, work around 
uh, the condemnation of blackness and the way crime has been used throughout American history to justify certain decisions. And this is becomes another example of it. And so even though it's well documented, housing discrimination, urban renewal has largely displaced black um, households. Uh, it's really interesting to add a new element to that, to see the role of college presidents in intertwining higher education with those decisions as well. Yeah, I found this ch- chapter fascinating, and I, I know that it was at this point that colleges uh, and several colleges and universities I've been associated with, at this point, they entered the property market, mm-hmm. and they sunk mm-hmm. huge amounts of their endowment into uh, neighborhoods that were around the universities yeah. in order to, um, I'm not sure what word to use here, <laughs> <laughs> help me out. <laughs> they, But you know, I mean, it, thinking about it from the perspective of the University of Chicago, I mean, you know. People in business talk about key indicators, and yeah. if your enrollment is dropping, yeah, <laughs> there's not a more serious key indicator than that. Yeah, and so they they were, yeah, they 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 were in a bad position and felt, you know, they didn't have a lot of good choices. No, no, and we're talking about millions of dollars, even by nineteen oh, fifties yeah. standards, right? Uh, University of Chicago ends up, you know, in the program urban renewal program around one hundred and ninety million. I think I write about it in the book. Imagine that announcement today that a university has a $190 million initiative. Um, so it, you go on to talk about, um, well, universities are bureaucratic. They're really yeah. bureaucratic. I don't know about yeah. UCLA, but all the ones I have worked at <laughs> were very bureaucratic. Uh, and you talk about administrative resistance to these kinds of reforms on campus. Can you, mm-hmm. can you expand a little bit on that? Yeah, yeah. You know, that's. I think that question speaks directly to the title of the book in the sense of the campus color line. Because um, the book covers so far in the first few chapters, obvious things, desegregation, housing, dis- discrimination, uh, obvious color lines. But outside of those normal uh, perceptions of how the color line is held, uh, administrative structure um, is extremely surprising finding for me and how, uh, you know, organizational hierarchy can find ways to delay uh, reforms um, that happen too swiftly. And so if you just take the University of California system, uh, where I am, a professor at UCLA, um, it's one of the more complicated issues uh, today. <laughs> uh, <laughs> and uh, it was also quite complicated um, during the mid 20th century. And one particular issue that shows how uh, you can have administrative resistance to reforms on campus is that in 1960, uh, the University of California hired Franklin Murphy to be the chancellor of UCLA. UCLA then is by no means even remotely close to what it is today. It's really an emerging. It's a a southern branch of Berkeley um, at that point. But Franklin Murphy is hired to build UCLA out into its very own, um, you know, strong, reputable university. And one thing, one priority, top priority for uh, Franklin Murphy as the new chancellor at UCLA is to support ending all forms of discrimination on campus and in the immediate neighborhood. This is important uh, because throughout the 1950s, before Murphy arrives as chancellor, the campus chapter of the NAACP would not be recognized by the previous administration as a formal student organization. So they had no access to resources, uh, you know, student organizing and that sort of stuff. They were just sort of left out on their own. But one of the first things that Murphy does upon getting to campus is recognizes, uh, acknowledges uh, the campus NAACP as a formal chapter. And that's just a little snippet of some of the things that he did right away. Now, with that said, (laughs) UCLA students soon uh, also participate the next year in 1961 in the Freedom Rides, which are intentional, uh, challenging, segregated um, public highway facilities in the U.S. South. And because Murphy is such a supporter, uh, the University of California system has a president that each chancellor reports to. So for the first time, Murphy has to report directly to uh, another president, another administrator, as Mm -hmm. opposed to directly to a board of regents. And you see the conflict unfold uh, to just how bureaucracy and organizational um, structure. Clark Kerr, who's the president of the University of California system, who's a notable figure in higher education history himself, uh, pushes back on many of Murphy's most defiant efforts to push to, you know, quickly in support of the Black Freedom Movement. And it really showed that how even organizational structures can at times stifle even the most ambitious university chancellor. Um, Well, thank you for that. This leads me into my next question, and that's about public universities. The University of California system is public, and they occupy 
obviously a special place in American higher education because they're state funded. Can you talk a little bit about how they, or rather their presidents as a group, dealt with issues of race on campus? Mm, yeah, great question. Uh, those presidents were oftentimes, um, you know, a rock in a hard place uh, for an obvious analogy in the sense that <clears throat> oftentimes um, lead, you know, being leading a public university, uh, you have to obviously respond to the demands of the state house, right? What are the elected officials in your state and who represents your your district, those sort of people. But also what you see during this moment is an increased um, amount of federal influence on public higher education in the sense that as particularly as you get into the Kennedy administration, uh, who John F. Kennedy has campaigned on the idea of stronger civil rights legislation, uh, you see uh, more uh, accountability being um press forward from federal officials in the sense that are these universities, particularly public universities that benefit from uh, taxpayer dollars, really adhering to, um, you know, the idea that segregation is not not the law of the land, uh, even though it's obviously in place. And so one uh, so some one of the issues that uh, really emerges here for the universities, for the university presidents of public institutions is just how do you have that balance um, between trying to adhere to your local norms and even in California, uh, the University of California during this era uh, has the same sort of um, issues that say academic leaders in Alabama or Mississippi have, Um, not necessarily in the sense of racial violence in the same kind of way, but certainly there's a very um, pro-segregation conservative streak that's prominent in California. Uh, and this is obviously right bubbling up to just before Ronald Reagan uh, emerges as a governor in California. So you see these presidents really trying to do this delicate dance, if you will, Marshall, <laughs> right between uh, what's happening at the state level and what's happening at the federal level and where they see their universities standing uh, between those um, really conflicting pressures at times. Yeah, this was a tough fight. I mean, particularly in the, in the South, because again, to go back to a previous point that we made, people were getting elected on segregationist tickets. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and uh, you know, a politician they may want many things, but they want one thing above all others, and that's to get reelected. <laughs> and, and, and they, you know, you can't step on too many toes and get get reelected. So they did. Uh, you know, the university presidents really did have to walk a very fine line when dealing with these groups, especially in the universities in the South. So uh, let's move on then. So in particular areas of the country, and notably in the South, uh, there was obviously strong resistance to this kind of racial reform on campuses. Mm-hmm. Um, and this is the kind of thing that springs to people's mind because people have seen the pictures at Old Miss and, mm-hmm. you know, places like Mizzou or Bama. I don't know if people know what Bama is, but that's the University of Alabama. For those of you who aren't from Alabama, Eddie and I are. <laughs> uh, they've seen the pictures and they know about, uh, you know, the National Guard on campus and these things. Yeah. Um, but could you take us a little bit deeper in how university presses respond to this resistance? Yeah, you know, this it, one one focus in my book, which I think anyone hopefully would find of interest, <clears throat> is that just how public relations meets civil rights. Yeah. And ultimately, uh, during this era, we've got an, an equally as as enrollments grow wider, uh, also media coverage has grown uh, significantly during this era, including, you know, television. And so we get images from the 1950s and 1960s that we just don't have from the 1920s and 1930s. And so for these college presidents, when you talk about resistance in the South and how these college presidents Uh, responded to this white resistance in particular, uh, there's also this trying to um, uh, form a public image, right? And so one particular issue when we talk about the University of Alabama and its desegregation in 1963 is that that comes a matter of months, about nine, 10 months after the University of Mississippi has this racial uh, riot on campus when James Meredith enrolls. This is significant because as soon as the firebombs and, you know, the two uh, people end up killed on campus at the University of Mississippi, that really kicks off how the University of Alabama president, Frank Rose, approached desegregation there. Because that was 
one of horrible global international image of the United States, but yeah. it was really bad for higher education in general. And what Frank Rose became immediately committed to was making sure that the University of Alabama did not have that image unfold in Tuscaloosa when the desegregation uh, question came to that campus. So one particular thing that Frank Rose can I, had- Can I, can I, 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 you're probably about to talk about this, but yeah. how did he do that? How did yeah. he do that? PR campaign. That's what I'm interested to yeah, know. Yeah, absolutely. Right. So uh, he realizes that is bad for business. And so what happens is he has a number of meetings with, you know, influential business leaders in the state of Alabama. And these business leaders, he pushes for this, this, this statewide call for peace. And he wants business leaders to tell uh, their supporters to maintain peace. He tells influential church leaders, ministers and preachers and so forth throughout the state uh, that they issue public statements calling for peace. Does the same thing with local alumni chapters throughout the state of Alabama, as well as the University of Alabama National Alumni Chapter issues public statements calling for peace. And ultimately, he travels around the state trying to convey to people if you even remotely care about the university in the way you say you care about the university, you won't show up in Tuscaloosa and cause violence and have an actual resistance to desegregation whenever that moment comes. Because it's already happened in Mississippi in 1962. It's already happened in Georgia in 1961. And Alabama's right in between those places. So in a lot of ways, he sees the writing on the wall and says that, well, how do you combat this resistance in advance and it really became a matter of messaging, right? And you know, so you get the the major newspapers in the state, um, you know, that also sign on to it. Particularly where you're from, up in northern Alabama, Huntsville, uh, the newspaper up there actually says, you know, it's probably in our best interest to desegregate the University of Alabama peacefully. Um, and so that really becomes, I mean, a pure strategy, all at the hands of the president. This surely did not come because of. Uh, George Wallace, who was the governor of the state. So it wasn't your elected segregationist officials doing so. Uh, this was significantly at the hands of Frank Rose, who was the president of the University of Alabama. And that's notable because, again, it shows that even in moments of conflict, when you have counter uh, resistance, if you will, to the overall push for black freedom, uh, presence still can be influential, even if they have to do so silently. And I think one of the most notable things, this is probably one of, I was just blown away to find this in the archives, is that Frank Rose coordinated some white business leaders in Alabama to fly to Anderson, South Carolina, to meet with university leaders from Clemson, because Clemson had also successfully desegregated without media attention and without violence. And uh -huh. so this is him co coordinating with the president of Clemson also to figure out what's the strategy and what can we do in Tuscaloosa. So even though we still get the symbolic, powerful image of George Wallace standing in the schoolhouse door to right. block those two students from enrolling behind the scenes, it was pretty straightforward about how that day was going to go, even though Wallace had his photo op. How you wouldn't happen to know how Frank Rose is uh, remembered today in Alabama at the University of Alabama because that's a pretty stellar performance. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, it, you know, I, I, you know, when I talk to archivists, um, when I'm down, you know, down at UA and on campus and looking on campus, people are, um, he's revered in a way in the sense that one, he hired Bear Bryant. Right. He was a legendary football coach for uh, yeah. listeners who yeah. are unaware. Uh, so Frank Rose also has a significant football hire that's important yeah. to the University of Alabama. But he also saves the university from racial violence. And so yeah. people on campus are aware of Frank Rose um, and his legacy. But we, I, I often like, like to think when uh, historians not from Alabama uh, write about that sort of George Wallace moment. Um, they often focus on sort of the conflict between Wallace and uh, Kennedy. Kennedy, yeah. Uh, yeah, yeah, as opposed to what Frank Rose was doing week in and week out, day in and day out. Yeah, that, that's a remarkable story, actually, about Rose. It, it really is quite, it's, yeah, it's, it's, uh, it's, it's impressive what he did. Yeah. yeah. Um, so uh, then you go on to talk about um, free speech mm -hmm. and how it intersects with 
these issues. And of course, universities are supposed to be bastions of free speech. And we've seen this a lot in the news recently because, and that means you have to listen to people that you don't really want to listen to. And this is doubly, triply, quadruply the case in the 19th late 1950s and the 1960s, when, as I say, there was open segregationists. How yeah. did university presidents deal with with the issue of free speech on campus? Yeah, that, that's a great question. And, you know, I, I, I like the, the fact that the free speech conversation happens after the Mississippi and Alabama uh, episode that I focus on in the book, particularly because what happens when you have a George Wallace have this, you know, phenomenal photo photo opportunity moment and goes all over the world. Uh, these segregationist governors from down south end up on speaking tours across mm-hmm. the nation um, because people just want to hear more about who these individuals are for some reason. <laughs> and um, so one particular episode that I cover in quite a good amount of detail in the book is Ross Barnett, who's the governor of Mississippi, been invited to speak at Princeton University. Um, And this is two weeks after the 16th Street Baptist Church bombing in Birmingham, Alabama, that uh, resulted in four little black girls being killed. Uh, So this just gives you some context of what's going on in the United States at that moment. And so to invite a segregationist governor uh, to your campus after something like that happens um, is in direct conflict with Princeton University's you know, new initiative to actively go out and find and recruit black students. Um, And when you think of Ivy League universities, uh, you know, there's there's this idea of the big three that historians have written about, you know, Harvard, Princeton, and Yale. Well, Harvard and Yale at this point are much more successful in recruiting black students to campus. Um, And the argument is because they're in urban areas and those students can, you know, at least find some, um, some relief um, in, in the community, in the cities, that if they can't get it on campus. But Princeton doesn't have that <laughs> in central New Jersey. So what you see is Ross Barnett coming to Princeton and President Robert Goheen um, at Princeton is, he's, that's, his, that's his conflict before him. And he's, he'd often had this ethos around welcoming a variety of speakers to campus. Uh, Ross Barnett is not the first controversial person that Goheen welcomes to campus. Uh, You know, Martin Luther King comes, uh, Fidel Castro comes, uh, you know, Malcolm X is on campus. I mean, just the list goes on. And so that's notable about Princeton. But it's the timing of Goheen uh, with what's going on nationally. And Goheen, I mean, not Goheen, Ross Barnett. It's the timing. Yeah, it's the timing of Ross Barnett coming to campus. And really the message that Ross Barnett has that black people are second class citizens and aren't worthy of being uh, given equal treatment at the same time that Princeton is actively trying to recruit black students. Uh, you, that's, that's not good messaging. As they say in the PR business. <laughs> uh, that is, that is uh, horrible. So Goheen's approach, which is, you know, was is so notable and quite remarkable and who also has quite a story um, uh, reputation at Princeton, even today is that, Barnett comes to campus and Barnett gives his usual segregationist speech uh, before a packed auditorium. I mean, I mean, no, everybody in that part of New Jersey must show show up um, for this speech. And but was notable, Robert Goheen, as president after the speech, goes out and meets with numerous black leaders in black Princeton in the Princeton Township. Uh And he starts working on a plan that says it's one thing to condemn or Ross Barnett as a, you know, white supremacist speaker coming to campus. But it's another thing to actually show how Princeton as a university can condemn um, a speaker like that. And so he actually uses Barnett's appearance to launch a number of initiatives on campus focused on addressing racial inequities, one of which being um, if you were a local landlord and were discriminatory in your rent practices, uh, you were removed from Princeton, um, you know, potential rental yep, housing list. Uh, if you were a contractor doing work on Princeton campus, you had to have a, a non-discriminatory clauses in who you hired um, in your construction companies and whatnot. 
Uh, the same thing for hiring practices uh, within certain offices on campus. He made sure that um, black people were given opportunities to be even interviewed for these positions and hired in these positions. He ends up hiring Carl Fields, who ends up being sort of the first black high level administrator at Princeton. And, and it's about five or six things like that that are launched within a month after Barnett uh, comes to campus. And so that's one particular way that, um, you know, Robert Goheen as president of Princeton was able to one, adhere to this idea of free speech on a college campus, but at the same time, almost model behavior that condemned Barnett's speech in the way that no public statement could condemn him. Yeah, that it was skillfully handled. Yeah. Um, yeah. I mean, and that's why presidents of colleges like Princeton make the big bucks, I guess. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> it, and it reminds me of Rose. Again, he reached out to the black community. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And that's absolutely key. Uh, if you want to have a successful, and I don't imagine Princeton has a lot of trouble recruiting black students today. So no, no, it all, no, it all worked out. Yeah. Um, or is working out, I should probably mm-hmm. say. So uh, another issue that you deal with in the book is affirmative action. And, and I have to say that this is a very tough sell mm. for most Americans because mm-hmm. Americans, uh, and this is a very broad brush, but they believe that people should be treated equally. And, yeah. uh, and so it's it's hard to, to convince anyone of a program that gives people advantages over others. But the college presidents had to do it, and yeah. it was good cause. Uh, how did they go about selling this to their constituents? And- <laughs> uh, that's a great I should, question. I say sell. I mean, I'm not, I'm not trying to imply they didn't have their heart in it. They did. But, yeah. you know, as you say, it's, it's a task. Yeah, it is a task. And, you know, I, I don't want to... I, I equally don't want to offer a broad stroke because I won't say that every college president had their heart in it uh-huh. um, historically. So I, I won't say that. And also, I think you're spot on in the sense that it's a hard sell to the average American, even in the liberal state like California. Right. Yeah. Uh, well, we right? just found that out. Exactly. Exactly. Yeah. Right. So even in this election in November 2020, uh, California just voted down for affirmative action. Yeah. Okay. So that's very telling, uh, both historically and in the contemporary context. But particularly for college presidents, um, you know, this is a, another fascinating topic that I came across in the book, and this is one that I I can admit I wasn't looking for, um, but it emerged to me as I was making connections, going to so many different universities doing this archival research, and uh, the Kennedy administration. Uh, President Kennedy reaches out to college presidents in the summer of '63. Uh, imagine uh, Birmingham, Alabama, May 63, the war- the police dogs and the water holes used on uh, black peaceful demonstrators. Uh, again, this just mars the global image of the United States as the you know land of the free and democracy. Um, and so Kennedy immediately looks to college presidents and he writes his letter. I was so happy to, to come across this in the archives. He asked university leaders to help come up with, quote, special programs that will address the racial issues in America. Uh, The Kennedy administration did not specify what these special programs should be. Um, Frankly, I don't, you know, it seems as if they didn't know what the answers were, but they were looking to university leaders to come up with these programs. And what happens is you get the presence of both predominantly white institutions and, uh, you know, black colleges as well, working together to come up with a series of programs that become the original affirmative action programs in higher education. Uh, so today, when we say affirmative action, this is, you know, people, they're, you know, court cases over and over and over again because people don't like the idea of considering race and admissions and your race maybe giving you a leg up and getting admitted to some highly selective institution. This is where that starts. And, uh, but also, in addition to race conscious admissions, there are also most of these programs these presidents come up with are focused on black colleges in the South. And I thought that was really um, interesting point in the sense that you get these partnerships, right? You get uh, University of Michigan will partner with Tuskegee Institute in Alabama, or you get a um, Indiana University with a partnership with Stillman College or a University of Wisconsin in partnership with Texas Southern and North Carolina Central and North Carolina A&T. And so you get these you know, larger predominantly white, wealthier universities agree to partner with historically black colleges that have been long underfunded and long under-resourced and say, well, what better way to address racial issues in America than to invest in the black colleges that do a disproportionate amount of educating black students in America? 
which in turn would, you know, obviously help the black community at, at large. Those were the initial plans for affirmative action. And what happens is over time, as foundation money becomes involved, so the Ford Foundation and the Carnegie Corporation, Rockefeller Foundation and some other smaller regional foundations start earmarking money to support these programs, several presidents at predominantly white institutions soon turn their attention away from the majority of the programs focused on black campuses and turn toward how they can better fund programs on their particular campuses. And so that's one way how college presidents have shaped the, um, you know, the overall implementation of affirmative action in higher education by ultimately leaving a legacy to where the emphasis on affirmative action today tends to focus on a select group of highly selective, predominantly white institutions, when in reality, originally these plans should have been toward a broader system-wide change within the U.S. higher education system. Yeah, I, I mean, I agree with you completely. There's kind of an analogy that sprung to mind. I mean, most people actually educated in college in the United States go to community colleges. Yeah, absolutely. And, mm-hmm. and people don't even know that because all yep. you hear about is Harvard and Princeton and Yale yep. and UCLA yep. and Berkeley. Yep. But actually where the rubber really meets the road is in community colleges. And it's it's sort of similar with the HBCUs. I mean, if you want to improve you know, African-American access to higher education, you need to fund the HBCUs. Yeah, absolutely. Sure, you need to do all these other things as well. And that's great. Mm-hmm. But, uh, you know, suing Harvard University because they don't accept enough of this or enough of that is not really very important to, you know, an aspiring African-American college student yeah. who wants to go to Spelman and doesn't have the money. Absolutely. Absolutely. Um, so, yeah. Yeah, yeah, Marcia, that's a great point. I mean, it really means that we've been left with the most narrow conception of affirmative action. I mean, we've like, let's focus on these 15 universities, right? Uh, Yeah. Yeah, no, it is. And it's it's, statistically speaking, it's kind of crazy because just, just as the case is like community colleges really do uh, all the heavy, I don't know, all the heavy lifting, but they do a lot of the heavy lifting. And uh, if you want to get people into a college track, that's where you should look. Absolutely. um, Yeah. And HBCUs are the same way. And they're also very old institutions. They're very well Mm -hmm. established. They know what they're doing. Absolutely. And so it's not like you're creating a new program. You're just better funding one that's already proven its worth. Yeah. Uh, So, um, yeah, I I guess we weren't going to talk politics. I'm a big fan of HBCUs. (laughs) (laughs) Um, um, Well, I I, I want to step back just a little bit and ask you a a little bit broader question our last couple of minutes. What role are college presidents playing today Mm. in these issues? You don't have to answer that question if you don't want. No, no. I love answering that question because it's, you know, the book gives us an opportunity to think differently about uh, educational leadership in the present. Um, And I think that's a fascinating question. And particularly in this pandemic moment, right? I mean, 2020, and we think about college presidents today, um, you've got the, the pandemic and its racial implications, as well as this broader racial reckoning that, um, we may or may not be having um, right now um, in America. So college presidents still have that level of influence. And I think you're right in the sense that the college presidency has evolved so much into being a, a fundraising position. Uh, they're off campus more than they're on campus. Yeah, they are. Um, you know, they're, they're, but with that said, they're still in the room with all of these influential people that can shape um, you know, policies and practices that influence how race is addressed in the United States. And it's really, I, you know, I would, this is one of those opportunities. That's, I love that question because I just, I would love to speak with more and more college presidents about history um, and the importance for them today to understand the history of their very own office, not just the university history, but their office. And, you know, I would encourage them to have a standing appointment, if you will, with the university archivists and local historical societies in the same way that they always meet with their uh, development <laughs> vice president. Or, yeah, exactly. Uh, development, uh, yeah. yeah, yeah, absolutely. So uh, you know, that role, the role, their influence uh, still exists today. Uh, and they may be physically far removed from campus, but they're very much involved with shaping policies and practices that will impact um all things race in the United States. It's not just about higher education and race. These positions, what I try to convey in the book is, um, you know, they are in a position to um, truly influence um, a number of the issues that we've been grappling with uh, for, for decades. 
I mean, it's funny you mentioned this because as as I was finishing the book, I thought, you know, Eddie should really be talking to college presidents. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I'm sure they meet, don't they? They have college president yeah. meetings and they can invite <laughs> you to come speak or they could fly you in. It could be a good side gig for you. And it's yeah. all in the, all. I mean, honestly, it because, it, you know, I'm a historian too. And I mm-hmm. think that, that the uh, historical perspective on things really does enrich, you know, policy decisions. And I can't imagine anybody better than you to go talk to them about how they should move forward. So if there are any college presidents listening, (laughs) invite Eddie to campus, please. Please please do. Uh, I will will tell you um, next week, I've got a meeting with um, an office of the president. Uh, there you go. So uh, they, they're actually popping up on uh, my schedule right now. So that's great. That's yeah, really no, this, that's, this is good. This is good. That's really that's really good. That's really good. I'm I'm happy to hear that. So uh, we have a traditional closing question on the New Books Network, and and it's this: okay. What are you working on now, other than Ooh. consulting with college presidents? <laughs> <laughs> uh, you, you know what the uh, something emerged uh, within writing this book, which I, I think is typical par for the course uh, for people who study history is that um, I want to know more about free speech and race um, and the way we t- discuss free speech um, in the present uh, oftentimes seems to be uh, sort of narrow in how we understand the historical arc of the question of campus speech and race. And so uh, right now I'm just getting off the ground a larger, a longer history uh, focused on uh, higher education and the role of speech alongside parallel efforts to make campuses more racially inclusive. Um, And so I want to make a long history that dates back uh, really uh, a century, century and a half um, on this and not just um, stop at the free speech movement at Berkeley in 64. Right. I, I want to go back uh, really, really almost to the, you know, about reconstruction era and understand that, you know, how someone such as say a Frederick Douglass, um, who was speaking on numerous college campuses, how did, you know, his messages around race go, fall in alongside uh, campus thoughts and practices about free speech so, um, you know, that's just a little snippet of what I'm working on and getting off the ground right now. But, um, yeah, stay tuned. Yeah, well, uh, we look forward to that. I think it's a fascinating topic. I, I think many Americans don't know or that, that in the late 19th century, mid mm-hmm. to late 19th century, giving public speeches at universities and town hall was it was sort of modern television. Mm-hmm. I mean, that's, that's where everybody went. Mm-hmm. Go listen to speakers. Um, Mark yeah. Twain is the most famous of them, but yeah. uh, there were entire tours of people that went. Uh, and uh, it's it's a, it's a fascinating history, and then it was eclipsed kind of by radio and television. But right, yeah. it was it was a big deal. Yeah. So, uh, Eddie, let me say thank you very much for being on the show. It's been a fascinating discussion. Uh, we've been talking to Eddie Cole about his book, "The Campus Color Line: College Presidents and the Struggle for Black Liberation." It's out from Princeton University Press just this year. Go get your copy, Eddie. Uh, thanks very much for your time. Hey, thanks for having me, Marshall. My pleasure. <laughs>